This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards, and I am Nick Batzig, your host, and this is the ninth episode as we consider together Jonathan Edwards' sermon, this time, The Pure in Heart blessed. That can be found in the Yale University Volume 17 edition, edited by Mark Valerie. And I am gathered together here to talk about the theology of the sermon with our two regular panelists. We are here with Dave Filson. Dave is the teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, PCA Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Dave, how's it going? Going well, going well. Good to be with you. Great to be back on with you. We were just on with Dave earlier this week recording uh, our last episode, and so it's always nice for us to be able to talk to one another on numerous occasions during the week. We are also gathered together here with Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is the teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. And Jeff is the uh, stated supply now of, and you're going to have to help me again, Jeff, what's the name of the church? That's okay. It's Knox Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. Uh, This is the congregation that uh, Professor John Murray of Westminster Seminary was involved with establishing way back in the day. Wow, that's a very nice historical connection, and uh, I'm sure I'll get Knox OPC after the third time I have to say that. So, (laughs) Jeff, we're thrilled that God has opened that opportunity for you to minister on a regular basis there. And I am as well. Thank you. Good to have you on the show. Good to be here. Well, uh, as most of our listeners will know, it's our custom to take one of Edward's sermons or uh, discourses and to talk about the history and the structure and then really to get into the theology and examine what what the great Jonathan Edwards was doing with um, his sermons and the way he used systematic biblical and even exegetical theology uh, in bolstering his messages to his people. And so as we enter in on this discussion of the pure in heart blessed, um, which is based on our Lord Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We want to kick this off to um, to Dave to open us up and, and to help us understand a little bit more of the historical setting of this sermon. Sure. Uh, this, this sermon is certainly in my top five uh, of Jonathan Edwards' sermons. Of course, my top five list is about 20 sermons long, but I'm no mathematician. I'm a, I'm a student of theology, so you'll forgive me for that. But it really is, um, I mean, literally in, in my top five. Uh, the sermon is, is a wonderful sermon going back to 1730. I'll give you a little bit of context here. Solomon Stoddard has just died. Uh, Edwards is now uh, the, the, the senior pastor, we might say, of the church at Northampton. This sermon comes a year before his famous July 8th, 1731 sermon, God Glorified in Man's Dependence. It's interesting that it has that that similarity of sermons of this period where Edwards is focusing on things like regeneration and God's sovereignty in regeneration and the enlightenment we have because of that. Uh, The the awakening uh, in Northampton and and then later in the, the Fuller, Connecticut Valley has not really taken off yet. However, just a few years after he preaches this sermon, uh, 1734 uh, to be exact, when he 
preaches a series on justification by faith, as well as divine and supernatural light, which thematically is very similar to this sermon. So you're looking at, at a few years there, four or five years, where that notion of God's sovereignty and enlightening and in, in regenerating and in opening our eyes and giving us sight, uh, th- this is certainly preeminent in his thinking. And then with, with this sermon, he's taking that a step further to our sight of the Lord in heaven, where we are going to see the Lord as he is, and he'll He'll uh, go to, to great lengths to talk about this is not a sight with the bodily eyes, but an immediate perception uh, of the soul, an immediate knowing of the Lord uh, as he is. Now, interestingly, he preached this sermon in Northampton. He preaches it, uh, Mark Valerie tells us, in a nearby parish. And then he preaches this sermon again in his Stockbridge years to the Indians. And if you've read, if our listeners have read any of those sermons or looked at any of those outlines, uh, those sermons to the Stockbridge Indians are uh, simplified. They are they are attenuated for the capacities of his hearers, and it's interesting that of all of the sermon corpus that he has to to select uh, sermons from, this is one of the sermons that he wants to make sure he preaches to the Stockbridge Indians, and and I can see why. It's such an encouragement to think of those uh, Native American believers being taught these things uh, about a growth in holiness and seeing the Lord as he is. It really is an encouraging thing. He takes his text, as you said, uh, Nick, from Matthew, which actually is the um, the book of the Bible that most of Edward's sermons come from. Uh, of, of all of his sermons, he preaches mostly from Matthew. Now, in print, what we have are mostly his sermons from Isaiah, but he actually takes most of his sermon texts from Matthew, and, and this uh, is, is an example uh, of that. Yeah, that's very interesting. Mark Valerie points out that this was a, a, uh, a lecture in three preaching units. Now, we can draw a couple of th- things. One, by calling it a lecture, it is possible that, um, initially at least, this was not preached on a Sunday, but that's just a speculation. Typically, Edwards' uh, sermons, at least in the, in the academic guild, the sermons are called sermons, and the, the weekday addresses are called discourses or lectures. Now, that may be reading too much into Valerie's comment, just something to think about. Also, it was delivered in three sections, in other words, over three consecutive meetings. In other words, it wasn't all delivered in one setting. And very often in the, in the scholarship, Edward's scholarship, scholars will point out that a preaching unit is what we would typically consider a sermon. Uh, but very often with Edward's uh, sermons were delivered, what we call a single sermon or lecture could be delivered over several, two or three or more occasions. Uh, keeping that in mind, the lecture or sermon does have the typical Puritan plain style three sections or tripartite division of exposition, doctrinal observation, and application, sometimes called the improvement or use. Uh, and in this particular uh, sermon actually has a two-part doctrine. Uh, the, and we find this on page 61 of the Yale edition of the works of Edwards, volume 17. Uh, One, it is a thing truly happifying to the soul of men to see God. Don't you just love that word, happifying? Uh, (laughs) We could probably say pleasing might be a close, approximate synonym. So we could say it is a thing truly pleasing to the soul of men to see God. Uh, Although... It might be that happifying is stressing the objective nature of the the sight of God rather than its subjective response. I don't know. And then number two, 
the having a pure heart is the certain and only way to come to the blessedness of seeing God. So one, the most pleasant or happifying thing that, that a person can experience is the sight of God, and the only way to experience the sight of God is to possess a pure heart. And of course, that's, that's what Edwards will unpack with some uh, specificity uh, in the three parts of the sermon. Now, Nick, you had said uh, you had some thoughts about the specifically the exposition, the comparing and contrasting of uh, our Lord's giving of the Sermon on the Mount with the uh, giving of the law at Sinai. Yeah, I mean, I, I I thought it was particularly interesting because we, and some of our listeners may not know this, but we started this podcast with a very specific view of looking especially for the biblical theology or redemptive history and that element that's found so prevalently in Edwards. And this sermon is a very fine example, as was East of Eden and several of the others that we looked at, of that in that the doctrinal section, when he comes out of the chute, he comes out contrasting God's presence and his um, his his voice at Sinai and his presence in Christ and specifically at the at the um, the mount from which he gives the sermon and so. Edward says at the beginning, God formerly delivered his law from a mountain, from Mount Sinai, by an audible voice, with the sound of a trumpet, with the appearance of devouring fire, with thunders and lightnings and earthquakes, Exodus 19. But the principal discoveries of God's mind and will to mankind were reserved to be given by Jesus Christ, his own son and the redeemer of men, who is the light of the world. And then he says, in this sermon of his, of which my text is a part, we have him delivering the mind of God also from a mountain. Here is God speaking as well as from Mount Sinai. And then Edwards does something really wonderful where he contrasts how th there was thunder and lightning and that it was exceedingly terrible and that the people begged that God wouldn't speak to them anymore with God speaking in Christ and speaking sweetly and speaking with gentleness and that contrast, um, which I think is pretty amazing. Same God, same Yahweh, um, but there's this redemptive historical shift. And in as much as Jesus is now speaking to those specifically uh, with regard to Christian character for the redeemed, that thing will, that will mark off those that have redemption through his blood, that they would be pure in heart. Um, and that they would see God, that they would have a spiritual sight of God. Um, it's really quite an amazing way for him to open the sermon, and one that I think a lot of people that would take Matthew 5, 8 atomistically, that's one of my favorite criticisms of a lot of people, is that they would take a verse out of context and not look at the biblical theology that is, again, the canvas behind our Lord Jesus on the mountain and what he's saying and teaching. So I thought it was amazing the way he opened the sermon. Mm-hmm. That's a beautifully, it's beautifully introduced, isn't it? Again, uh, stressing the, as you've already said, the uh, the biblical theological sensitivity of Edwards. And anybody who's actually read Edwards at some length, I think, is sensitive to this, that, that uh, those who are steeped in the uh, Bossian tradition of biblical theology will know that Edwards is, is uh, doing this uh, long before your heart is Voss shows up. Uh, what what exactly uh, he he does a contrast i think between our lord's teaching and what was typically understood to be the expectation for interacting with god uh, amongst uh, our lord's uh, jewish compatriots what does edward say about that 
Right, right. He really contrasts the what he calls the false notions and carnal prejudices that were at that day embraced by the nation of the Jews and really dealing with their perverted mindset about the religion that God had entrusted to Israel and who God himself was. And he says, in a couple of these contrasts, and I'm not going to read it all, but he says, it was contrary to the received opinion of the world, and especially of that nation who were exceedingly ambitious of the praise of men and highly conceited of their own righteousness. So what Jesus is saying comes in stark contrast to the received opinion of the Jews, something that the new perspective on Paul proponents would not like at all, but what is biblical to the core, that they they thought blessedness came in riches, and um, even, notice what Edward says here in that opening section, he says, for they were generally of a cruel, unmerciful, persecuting, contentious spirit. You see that in the Pharisee and the tax collector. You see it in the Apostle Paul before he's converted. You see that Jesus calls the Pharisees lovers of money um, and that everything that they, they saw as a mark of blessedness was actually entirely antithetically contrary to the blessedness that Jesus teaches about those that have a great, are in a gracious state um, in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, one of the things I, I, I meant to mention earlier was that that understanding of the spiritual understanding as opposed to speculative understanding enters in very clearly in this sermon. And, and there's a certain sense in which that is the key to understanding some of Edward's uh, critical remarks of, of, the, of the Jews of our Lord's day. Uh, he says here on page 60, the Jews were dreadfully in the dark at that day about spiritual things. The happiness they expected of the Messiah was a temporal, carnal, and not a spiritual happiness. Now, it should be said, of course, that this is not something unique to Jews. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a problem because of our sinful nature, and so therefore it's, it's an impediment uh, that's also shared by Gentiles. Yeah, and there's something very masterful about the way that Edwards contrasts what our Lord says to the Pharisees with what he says here on the Sermon on the Mount about his disciples, and quoting Matthew 23, 25, and 27, you make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but inside you're full of extortion and excess. You're like whitewashed sepulchers, um, I'm paraphrasing here, that outwardly are beautiful, but inwardly full of dead men's bones, uncleanness. By contrast, his true disciples would not be... Um, caught up with and would not see their religion as preeminently existing in external things in conformity to rites and ceremonies, but would be that inward purity of heart through the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. And so I thought that was, I thought it was a very creative and biblically faithful way of introducing this. Yeah, I wonder how many sermons we've heard on, you know, the Beatitudes that have this kind of biblical theological sensitivity at the outset, you know, setting setting Jesus is set, setting a sermon on, you know, Matthew five or anywhere from Matthew five to seven, but setting up a sermon on Matthew five in the context of Jesus preaching a sermon with the biblical theological backdrop. Right, right. I just don't know that we hear that kind of biblical theological sensitivity and sophistication with this text. Yeah, and that's so important. Again, I mean, I think this is the strength of Edwards. While he doesn't do this absolutely consistently, as you know, none of us do, he does do it. And he does it at a time when, you know, 
systematic theology is very high, and, and as we all know, um, Edwards is in one sense spearheading the redemptive historical um, uh, development as a science in hermeneutics, even though it's with, it's in the Puritans, it's in Sibs, it's in Manton, it's in all the Puritans in differing degrees. Edwards really sees the importance of it. When did, when did Edwards do History of the Work of Redemption? Was that 1739? Yeah, that's when he first uh, preached it as a series of sermons. And, of course, he he was hoping at the end of his life in his letter to the trustees of the College of New Jersey to get back to it and to turn it into a, a, a treatise, you know, a, a fully-blown edited treatise. But 39 is when he preached it. Yeah, so that's amazing that, you know, here almost a decade, decade earlier, he already has this rich biblical theological understanding of Scripture developing and um, sustaining even his understanding of a text like Matthew 5.8. Um, well, as he develops this sermon out a little bit, um, either of you could walk us into the doctrinal observations and how Edwards develops the idea of this this um, blessedness and being able to see God. What are what are some of the ways that he develops this exposition? Yeah. Oh, the one thing uh, we could also say uh, to tie it into a, maybe a, a systematic theological Loki uh, is to to point out that that Edwards, in some ways, is, is going is addressing the the uh, visio dei, uh, yep. the beatific vision of God. Yes. Uh, the that it begins, it, it, it's consummated in heaven, but it begins in this life. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's something to keep in mind as we uh, discuss this. He, he makes the note, which I believe David had already, has already made reference to, and that is that uh, tis not any sight with the bodily eyes. True blessedness of the soul don't enter in at the door. This would be to make the blessedness of the soul depend upon the body or the happiness of men's superior parts to be dependent on the inferior. Isn't that amazing? Uh, you know, he's talking, of course, about the, also about the divisio dei, uh, the, the sight of God. It uh, doesn't wait until the resurrection, right? Right. right. It occurs when, when the saint is uh, translated, if you will, from earth to heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the intermediate period between the the death of the saint and and the well actually before then right the, this begins in the life of the believer as a pilgrim in uh, on the pathway but it also gets uh, goes into heightened overdrive if you will at the, the death of the saint going to be with the lord in heaven and then of course will will reach its ultimate consummation at the the time of the resurrection, but his point is it's not with the bodily eyes. Uh, David, you you want to fill that out a little? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's important to see as you read more broadly in the corpus of Edwards, not just his sermons but his treatises as well. At that point that you're bringing up there, Jeff, of the beginning of this sight, uh, it, it's it's not in glorification in the new heavens and the new earth, a sight with the bodily eye. It, it's not even be, you know begun with with the intermediate state. It really begins with the new sense of the heart, the, the idea that at regeneration, um, you know, the, the believer is able. And, of course, Edward uses all kinds of sensory perception language, you know, to taste the sweetness of Christ, etc., to see the beauty of Christ. This, this sight of Christ is an inward spiritual knowledge, an inward spiritual perception and seeing of Christ 
uh, that we, as you know, Paul would say, though we see through a glass darkly, nonetheless, that there is a sight, there is a perception of Christ in the here and now, in the life of the regenerate believer. And so there's a consistency of development from, um, you know, the already, right, here, uh, into the not yet, as it pertains to the intermediate state, and even further into the state of glorification. But he stresses here that this sight of Christ, this perception of Christ, is not mediated through, if I can say it this way, the eyeball. It's not mediated through the physical eyes. Uh, it's not a bodily sight. It's a spiritual sight. Uh, Edwards is wanting to uh, stress that the um, superior part of man is not dependent upon the inferior part of man, i.e. the sight of Christ is not dependent upon the physical eye of, of the body. And, and here I think he's, he really is following in the, in the train of Calvin, who talks about in Institutes 115.3, uh, the soul being the primary seat of the image of God, all those sparks of the image of God uh, are, in, are in the body of man. And so he has a holistic a duality view of the image of God and man. Calvin, as I think Edwards does here, uh, nonetheless he stresses the superior part of that image of God and man is the is the spiritual component. It is it is the soul, and so the sight of Christ uh, is not done with the bodily eye, but will be seen spiritually and an immediate rather than immediate perception of Christ. And if you think about that, I mean that really is, and we could get into all sorts of philosophical discussion here about knowledge and perception. But if you think about the fact that even when the eye perceives something, when the eye sees something, the eyeball looks at anything, the mind is perceiving it, a pure perception here for Edwards is the immediate perception, the immediate seeing that the soul is capable of. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I love the way that Edwards bolsters this, again, with a redemptive historical argument where he contrasts um, the glory that Moses saw on the mountain at the very outset of this doctrinal section, um, the glory that was visible on Moses' face and that Israel could see physically, you know, actually as a type of the glory of Jesus that was seen physically by the apostles at the Transfiguration. Mm -hmm. And Edwards is probably the best at going through uh, what Peter says in Second Peter, what John says at the beginning of the Gospel of John about we beheld his glory and we were eyewitnesses of his majesty and how the transfiguration serves as a, um, a earthly visible manifestation of what you've just said, Dave, that it is actually a spiritual sight of that divine glory of Jesus in the soul, the same glory that that was visible on Moses' face as a reflected glory off of God on the mountain, the same glory that was visible as emanating from Jesus at the transfiguration, that outward glory being a manifestation of the glory that we see by faith, um, because it is the glory of the God who has made us. It's beautiful. It really is beautiful. Yeah. I think the theology of the transfiguration uh, it's something that, that just in broader Christian circles, we don't hear a lot of teaching and, um, you know, well-developed theology of the transfiguration. And so I'm, I'm always interested when I see Edwards doing this. And it's not just here. He, he does it in other places in his corpus where he will draw out the implications of the transfiguration. He does, yeah. He has a great section in Notes on Scripture, Notes on the Bible, whichever it's titled. And it's about a page and a half of his um, going through what the apostles saw and what the apostles reflected um, back on, and that it was like the most momentous event for them. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't the garden. It wasn't 
in the room where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to see the little girl risen from the dead, um, to whom he said, Talitha Kumi. But it was on the transfiguration that John and Peter are so overwhelmed by what they saw that that's Isn't what it? they write about. Isn't it interesting? You've got here, without him saying so, it's a, it's a typology of God on the mountain. Absolutely. Uh, right? right? You've got Sinai. Then you've got uh, Jesus uh, on the uh, Mount of the uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Then you have uh, Moses uh, and desiring to see God's glory. And then you have the Mount of Transfiguration. So there's an oscillating back and forth between the Old and New Testament. Yeah, it's an it's an amazing thing, I think. And interesting that Edwards would talk about how Moses got to see the back of God, which you know he doesn't get to see the face of God, even though elsewhere it does say he spoke face to face. But at the Transfiguration, he does see the face of God. He sees the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. So Mm -hmm. there is a rich biblical theology there. That almost reminds me. I don't know if any of you have seen or heard. uh, Ligon Duncan did a sermon uh, with regard to Elijah. and it's in 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 the sermon, Ligon makes uh, argues the point that Elijah, uh, in his earthly ministry as a prophet, um, doesn't get to um, you know that he has that encounter after he's on Mount Carmel and he runs away because he's afraid, right? Or apparently afraid of Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel says, you know, I'm going to do to you what you just did to the, to the prophets of Baal. Uh, and of course, you know the Lord doesn't visit in the uh, the magnificent displays of power, but He comes in the still small voice. Mm. Uh, but it, it actually Elijah has to wait until the Mount of Transfiguration to see the glory of God. Mm. The thing that Elijah longed for, yeah. which was the appearance of the glory of God, he has to wait until he's. Uh, uh, until the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, that's the kind of thing that Edwards is doing. Yeah. Uh, the kind of biblical theology. Yeah, it's amazing. It really plants all of the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises in Christ again. Mm-hmm. And that even the seeing of God is seeing God in Christ and exactly. seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul will say, the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, I love how Edwards develops this and how he talks about that this seeing, as Dave's already noted, though not with bodily eyes, will be as immediate as when we see things with our bodily eyes, so that um, the glory of God and the love of God will be beholded by us as the countenance of a friend looking in the face of a friend. That there's this... um, It makes you long for it, the way Edwards puts it. It makes you want to see that now. I think about how Paul always says, um, especially in Ephesians, where he talks about the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, that we would see God even as if we were seeing him with our eyes, though we would not be beholding him with our physical eyes. Right. Do you see uh, what he says at the bottom of page 63? Uh, it's Not only is it a, a more immediate than seeing with the bodily eyes, which of course blows my mind, Right. Because I don't, I don't know what that is. Uh, haven't experienced it yet, really. Notice what he said there. It's under number two. Nor if we have an apprehension of God merely 
by speculative reasoning. Uh, here's what you had mentioned earlier. If we come to some apprehension of God's being and of being almighty and all-wise and good by ratiocination, nice. that is not what the Scripture calls seeing God. It is some more immediate way of understanding and viewing what is called sight. Nor will such an apprehension as this merely ever make the soul truly blessed. So you see, he's making that dis- that very distinction that he makes elsewhere when he ta- in the religious affections, when he talks about the difference between a speculative understanding and spiritual understanding. It's, the spiritual understanding involves not merely perception, which would be involved in the speculative understanding, but also the immediate awareness of the beauty, the glory, the holiness, the uh, righteousness, and so on, uh, of God comes immediately. Mm. When I think of Edwards and I think of, say, religious affections, and you make the connection there, Jeff, I, I think I read religious affections with this sermon in the background. I think I read and, and study everything uh, that I do in Edwards with this in the background. When I, when I think about the, the various things he's written on regarding heaven, and he wrote so much on heaven, this is in the background. I think it's because of the emphasis he places on the word immediate. There is an immediacy to this side of Christ. And, um, and, and I don't know that we want to go too far afield philosophically here, but if, if sight is a vehicle to apprehension, if, if sight, if seeing something with the bodily eyes, you know, you're looking at whatever's in front of you at any given moment, if that is a means to an end, that end being apprehension, then this side of Christ, this apprehension of Christ, is a clearer apprehension of Christ than would be had with our fallible bodily eyes because, because of the immediacy of it, the immediacy of the soul's knowledge of Christ is what he's speaking of here. And I think it's something that motivated and drove Edwards. And I think if we don't get this about Edwards, we miss not only Edwards, but we miss out on something uh, deeper and more mysterious with our own understanding of what it means to be regenerated what it means to have the new sense of the heart, what awaits us in the intermediate state, and what awaits us ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth, when we will have bodily eyes yet glorified. There are some uh, statements that Edwards makes that back up what you're saying on page 64. But to see God is this, it is to have an immediate and certain understanding of God's glorious excellency and love. There must be a direct and immediate sense of God's glory and excellency. I say direct and immediate, to distinguish from a mere acknowledging that God is glorious and excellent by ratiocination, which is a more indirect, immediate way of apprehending things than intuitive knowledge. And then he jumps down, it must be a more immediate discovery that must give the mind a real sense of the excellency and beauty of God. He that sees God, he has an immediate view of God's great and awful majesty, of his pure and beauteous holiness of his wonderful and enduring grace. If I may put put it this way, Edwards is saying that he who has this sight of God is not merely looking at it as an outward, outside spectator. He's not on the outside of a window looking in. He's actually, it's not as if he's becoming God, but he's actually affected, affected by by the sight that he sees. Yeah, and as you read further, you know, in Edwards, and this, you know, I guess we could draw in, you know, implications for 
you know, a Ventilian understanding of analogous knowledge. But when you read further in Edwards, and the the soul has this immediate sight of God, it's not a mere observation, like a spectator looking at something. This propriety that the believer has in it, there is an effect on the believer, such as comports with what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 1-4, right? Uh, that we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Not that we will be him, not that, that we will have the inexhaustible, infinite knowledge uh, of God, or that we will in any way be God, but John does say, and I think we have to take this seriously, we will be like him. So there, there's the idea of conformity with this, with this side of Christ that the soul has, this knowledge of Christ, that knowledge has a, a, a transformative effect on the soul and conforms us in holiness and happiness. You know, when Edwards continues to, to teach and preach and write on heaven, I mean, he says a number of things about the, the progress of the pilgrim in heaven, right? You yes. know, in, in Miscellany um, 1121, he speaks of, of saints seeing God and, and having this sight and, and growing. Um, in Miscellany 105, we, we are holier all the time. In Miscellany's 106 and 777, we become happier all the time. I just have to, to quote this Miscellany 435. He says, but when the saints are got to heaven... There is yet another great change yet behind. There is yet another state, which is that fixed and ultimate and most perfect state, which the whole general assembly, both in heaven and earth, are designed for, and therefore they are still progressive. Not but that I believe saints will be progressive in knowledge and happiness to all eternity. And now that's a, that's a staggering thing to think about. It's a staggering thing to think about. And I remember years ago I was giving a... Um, was given a seminar out in Tucson, Arizona, on, on the theology of Edwards, and particularly his theology of heaven. Goodness, this was this is over a decade ago, and at this conference, uh, you know that saintly sister uh, Johnny Erickson Tata was one of the keynote speakers. Well, I'm giving one of these breakout workshops on Edwards, and she motors in to this seminar, and I start talking about this and the idea of our being of our seeing Christ immediately, and then, and then ultimately uh, our, our glorified state is an ever-progressive state. And I think we can hear that, and we think, well, that, that sounds great. But here was this woman who, as you know, in God's providence, has been impaired for most of her life physically. And I'll never forget, as I talked about this, with what movement she could muster, throwing her head back and raising her arms as, as best she could, and I'll never forget her saying, oh, David, tell me it's true. Tell me it's true. Mm. This is where Piper's sort of Christian hedonism comes from. And that's been um, under attack and, and at least the object of criticism from a lot of reform guys over the years. I've heard a lot of the more knowledgeable reform guys kind of raise criticisms with Edwards on <clears throat> his Christian hedonism. And I don't I'm not qualified to speak to all the ins and outs of it. But when I read a sermon like this, I hear the foundation of what Edwards is doing. I see or what Piper's doing. I see in Edwards in this sermon specifically the um kind of the impetus for where Piper is always pulling this out. I remember hearing as a young Christian, uh one of my friends who was into Piper would say to me, heaven is going to be ever-increasing ecstasy. 
using mm-hmm. that kind of language. Now, me coming out of the background I came out of where there was drug abuse and attempt to you know find self-pleasure and delight and all that is synthetic and all that is really rebellion. Nevertheless, what Edward says here is that there is pleasure. He says actually under the section where he talks about there's no mixture, he says this pleasure brings no bitterness with it. This is not the case with other kind of delights. Those that carnal men are want to place their happiness in. It's interesting how Edwards is looking at the psychology of human nature that we are built for pleasure. We are built to find satisfaction and delight. And God promises he is going to so please the soul with an immediate sight of himself for all eternity. And there's not going to be any sorrow or sighing or bitterness or mourning because he is going to be all satisfying. I think about Psalm, um, I think it's 17 where David says that he prays that he could awake in God's likeness, that he could see God's face in righteousness, that he would be satisfied um, with the view of God. And that is missing in so much preaching. And it's, it's, so, it's, it's so emphasized here. And elsewhere in Edwards, there is a great consistency with this, with this language of sense perception. I know people, you know people make a lot of of Edwards, you know, sort of co-opting the the philosophical um, discourse of his day. I think I think Edwards' use of the language of you know the, the rhetoric of of sense or sense perception is far more than him simply you know using the philosophical discourse of his day. I think there's something deeply biblical, deeply theological that he was that he is committed to even apart from, you know, Lockean terminology or, or, or whatever. And you see this concept going on, not just in this sermon, not just in Heaven is a World of Love. You see it in religious affections. You see it in charity and its fruits. It, it is a central part, not only of his, of his homiletic and um, his sort of theology proper, it's a central part of his ethic as well. That's right. That's right. Um, this idea of, you know, uh, we desire to be happy. And uh, the, the, the creature naturally seeks his happiness, and that is how God has designed us. He's designed us. You know, seeking our, our own happiness is not in and of itself a sin. However, we can sinfully seek our happiness in any number of other things, right. but we were made for pleasure. We were made uh, for happiness. Ultimately, we were made for God, and what God's going to give us is himself. And this idea of the immediate side of Christ is, is an example of that. I mean, I, look, I tell you, this stuff will preach if we let it. Absolutely. I was thinking the... Um Edwards is really building off an Augustinian insight here, is he not? Our hearts are restless yes. until they find their rest in you, referring to God. And, of course, uh, Augustine will argue that the whole nature, not the whole nature, but, but part of the nature of regeneration is the reorientation of our love. Uh-huh. Right? It, it's not that you, you, don't re- you don't replace a misdirected love with no love. You replace the misdirected love with a properly directed love. Instead yeah. of being bent inward, in the Latin, in se, bent inward, you are now bent outwardly toward God, uh, which is the way God originally created us in the first place. Um, yeah, which is Edward's difference between you know a confined self-love and an enlarged self-love. And he speaks of, of, of self-love. Um, yes. Edwards is very Augustinian, in my opinion, in religious affections. So in, in the nature of true virtue, which is the more philosophical thank, discourse. Thank you. Thank you. That's exactly right. 
Now, it's interesting to me that Edwards introduces something at the very beginning of the sermon that he will pick up um, throughout, and he will talk about how um, it, it's unsuitable for the glorious and most blessed, blessed God to embrace and caress in the arm of his love that that is infinitely more filthy than a toad or a serpent. So he'll talk about, um, if I can put it this way, Dave, the unfittedness mm-hmm. of God... Um, embracing and caressing filthy sinners like us. And yet, um, God regenerates his people and he'll say a little ways down in the sermon, there are such pleasures as instead of adding any beauty to them are indeed the filth of the minds. They don't excel their natures, but make them more akin to beast. And so what man pursues by nature, um, in the place of these infinite and eternal pleasures and, and all satisfying, glorious uh, visions of God are the filth of lower things that make us more like animals. And then towards the end of this sermon, Edwards will introduce this idea of filthiness and filth in contrast to purity. Um, would one of you guys like to develop that a little bit? Because it, beca- it, it gains uh, a whole lot of um, steam at the end of the sermon in contrast to the purity um, which God gives his people by faith in Jesus. Well, this, this comes in, of course, because he's, wanting, he's telling us that this isn't merely reserved for the saint in heaven, right? There's a beginning of this in, in the life of the, the Christian on this side of the new heavens and the new earth. And therefore, there's going to be, because of what we know from Scripture elsewhere, that there's going to be uh, a concern with the ongoing uh, uh, remaining traces of sin. The, now, of course, the dominion of sin has been broken for the believer who trusts in Christ and is justified, but there is an ongoing wrestling match, if you will, with the remaining vestiges of sin in the, in the life of the believer. And this gets at some of what we were talking about, uh, brothers, if, if you remember from our last sermon, and we were concerned about Edwards uh, maybe stressing too much uh, effort or, or striving to enter into the kingdom, that kind of thing. Yep. Edwards is going to return to that That's because that, that's a prevailing idea uh, in the thought of Edwards, that the Christian life is not – we don't float to heaven on a flowery bed of ease, right? That's right. Uh, Right. We might we might be critical of Edwards at points because he's overstressed, or if he stresses something, he he, he fails to to. If he's stressing the imperative, he he may it might be good if he were to remind his hearers of the indicative. And really, that is important. But he's here. He's going to remind us. Okay, it's the pure in heart who will be blessed. It's the pure in heart who will see God. Right. And he's going to stress the need to what the Puritans would say, mortify the flesh. Yeah, and I think it's instructive, too, because what what obscures the seeing of this glory of God is the filthiness of sin, what keeps us, uh, what's an obstacle for the natural man to seeing this. The only obstacle, because we're made in the image of God, the only obstacle is the filth and the love of the filthiness of sin. Edwards will actually say the heart is said to be pure with respect to the to that filth that it is pure from. Sin is the greatest filthiness. There's nothing that can so defile and render so abominable. It is that which has an infinite abominableness in it. And indeed, it's the only spiritual filthiness. There's nothing else that can defile a soul but sin. It's kind of a tell of two visions, isn't it, really? 
That's good. A tale of two visions. That's very good. Or, or a tale yeah. of two sights, you know? That's um, right. Right. Dealing with the, the imperative here, you know, at the end where he, he says, in, in, under application, you know, purify your hands, cleanse yourself from every, you know, external uh, impurity of speech, and not just having an external righteousness, but an internal one as well, you know, just this idea of purity. I mean, it's consistent, isn't it, with what the Apostle John says when he speaks of beholding Christ, becoming like him as he is, and then he says, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is, as he is pure. And there, there is enablement and excitement for purity from the hope that we have. We have this hope. We have this certain hope of, of this side of Christ. And what that hope does is, is it excites practical purity uh, in, in our lives. And so I think, that's, I think this is very consistent, what Edwards is saying here, that what John says in First John 3. Yeah, I used to have a friend that um, he would say two things that I found very helpful with regard to this. One, he would say, you know, a lot of people think eschatology doesn't matter. But John, in quoting First John uh, 2 or 3, what, what you just quoted, Dave, he said, um, John links our eschatological hope with purity. That eschatology wow. has such a practical import that whenever it's spoken of in Peter or in First John or anywhere else, it's always linked to holiness, that everyone has this hope, purifies himself. And we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. Let us be found with him without spot and blameless. And so eschatology, far from being some speculative thing, has a great powerful working on us, which I think Edward says in here, for our holiness. The other thing my friend used to say that really impacted me, we would be in a a prayer group on Sunday night, and I remember one time he prayed, he said, Lord, remove every obstacle from our heart that keeps us from seeing your glory. And I had never heard anybody pray that. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Edwards is saying, that there are obstacles, the filth of sin, that keep mm-hmm. us now, not just then, but now from seeing the glory of God. And so oh, this yes. this has powerful pastoral and sanctification and- application to us that... I want to see God more clearly, and that means I can't live in sin. I can't embrace him, because when I'm embracing that filthy thing, and Edwards will talk about sin as this filthy pet almost, mm-hmm. that we take to, you know, we, we keep this pet close to us, that those pet sins keep us from seeing this all-satisfying glory of God. This is, a, this is an amazing sermon, really. It's a really amazing sermon. Yeah, it's, it really is. It's about eschatological enablement. I mean, there is an enablement yeah. to eschatology, isn't there? Is there what is. you're saying? There is, yeah. We, I think we, in maybe an overreaction to perfectionism, we fail to remember that we are uh, inhabited, those of us who, who have uh, come to faith in Christ, which is, of course, produced by the Holy Spirit. If we have come to truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are inhabited by the Holy Spirit he is, uh, we become a holy temple. Uh, not only that, but we're united to Christ, who is the, okay, he was the perfect law keeper, and he's the model for us, right? And Jesus never sinned. So Jesus is never going to model for us uh, sinful behavior. Mm-hmm. He's never going to model for us a love of filth. Yeah, and um, I love the way Edwards talks about 
the blessing of seeing God in contrast to embracing filth is great. He'll use that word great. And you pointed this out, Dave, in, in the outline that you provided for us for this talk, that there's a greatness in seeing God, seeing the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. There's a greatness in our being upright. How motivating that is, you know, that um, we think, think about Moses, you know, he um, forsook the pleasures of Egypt. He uh, esteemed the reproach of Christ, greater treasures or, you know, the passing pleasures of sin than the riches of Egypt. And we look at sin and we think this is going to satisfy me. This is going to be good. When God says, I have something infinitely great for you in my son, Jesus Christ, and it comes to the pure in heart. I mean, what a motivator for us to put sin to death, you know? Yes. We, we, I think we sometimes think that uh, uh, this, quote-unquote, comes naturally, but it, it does take spirit-enabled uh, effort uh, to go against the uh, sinful desires of our own heart. Even though we are justified in Christ, uh, His righteousness has been imputed to us, but we, we also... Uh, daily must uh, follow after our Lord, as, as Edwards points out. Yeah, and I think that's really built on the fact that Jesus is himself the pure in heart. And Edwards doesn't, uh, maybe I missed it in this sermon, he doesn't come out and say, Christ is the only one who is absolutely pure in heart. But he does say that in the miscellanies. He actually has a short miscellanies on this, where he says, um, all true believers are characterized by purity in heart, but it's imperfect, and that there is one who is pure in heart, and that is Christ. And that would really fit with, you know, what John says in First John about when we see him, we'll be like him. Everyone who, you know, walks as he walked, well, it's his righteousness as our foundation. He is the perfectly pure in heart. When we read Psalm 24, and I think that might have been the verse that the miscellanies is on, where it says, you know, um, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who is not lifted up his soul to an idol. And Edwards will say, while that is true in one sense of the saints, though imperfectly, it is absolutely true of Jesus. And so coming to him and believing on him and looking to him and resting in him and fleeing to him and, you know, fixing our eyes on him, that is the source of this purity of heart because he is absolutely pure in heart perfectly. Yeah, and it's a source for our purity in heart. And th think about this, guys. It's the, it's the source for our purity of heart because when we see him, right, we will be like him, for we shall see, right? It's that, it's that perception of the soul. See him we, saw, is, we shall right. see him as he is. That's beautiful. So we, mm. we will see the, um, <laughs> we will see, not through a glass darkly, we will see that purity that Jesus is as he is. B beyond, beyond our ability now, uh, even to think about it or conceive of it or uh, to be conformed to it, isn't that amazing that he's not as it, as he is? We will see him. We will know him as he is. Mm. Yeah, he's not just the source of our holiness. He's the object of our holiness. <laughs> he's the object of the the sight of holiness. Um, as in a mirror, you know, we reflect face to face. So when we look at Jesus, when we see him, we see his holiness, and we we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing. It really is amazing. Yeah. All kinds of Pauline union with Christ, sanctification, glorification implications here. 
Yeah, and I think this is much more balanced sermon than maybe the last one we looked at on Paul and example, some of the criticism we raised, because Edwards will call for this radical obedience and radical pursuit after holiness and purity. But then he'll say this right before he comes to that final exhortation we just talked about. He'll say, are our souls now of such a nature that the remainders of sin are their continual burden? Is sin that which we long to get rid of? Are we ready with the apostle to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Cannot we rest and be quiet in the beholding of any sin in us, but that we must be continually laboring to cleanse ourselves from it more and more? And so there's this, isn't there's this amazing theological balancing act he's doing between pursuit of purity and yet acknowledgement of indwelling sin, and yet not a dismissal of sin, but a discontent with it, a hatred for it, a desire for it to be done away with and victory in Christ. And so it's like uh, this perfect symmetrical balancing out of this subject. Yeah, if, there's, if there is a fitness between my contentment and the sight of Christ that is promised and held out for me, and, and of which I already have had a, an appetizer in regeneration in the new sense of the heart, then there should be, um, as you said earlier, an unfittedness between my contentment and my sin. That's right. That's right. Well, guys, this has been a really spiritually rich sermon for me to consider, and I really appreciate you guys coming on this show again and walking us through this and all the observations and thoughts. Um, We've got some great interviews coming up. We're going to have Sean Lucas on the show and a few other guys. And again, I want to tell our listeners that if you'd like to read more of Dave Filson's works, you can find him blogging occasionally at teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. Dave is also going to be teaching uh, Demon course at RTS Charlotte, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, here in January of 2013. And so if you are anywhere near the Charlotte area, you could either audit that or take it for credit if you're at a place to do that. I want to encourage you to do that. I think that's going to be a richly rewarding course. Um, Jeff, of course, you can find all over the Reform Forum and on Feeding on Christ, and you can listen to some of his sermons at Calvary dash amwell.org jeff does knox opc have a website uh they do uh i I think you you can get access to it through the opc's website yes uh, opc.org and that's in lansdowne pa yes yeah so check out um the website for knox opc in lansdowne pennsylvania see if any of jeff's sermons will be posted there as he preaches there on a regular basis visit there with him if you are in the uh, Philadelphia suburbs in that area or passing through I know he'd love to meet you Mm. Um, we are so thankful that you have spent the time to listen to this we hope that you get excited about studying Edwards more thoroughly and we hope that you'll tune in again to another episode of East of Eden the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards thanks thanks